Welcome to Crump Insights, exploring timely life insurance and retirement planning topics for today's forward-thinking financial professionals. In this episode, we'll discuss life insurance underwriting in today's challenging environment. I'm Brian Bushlack, your host for this series and an active life and health insurance producer. Joining us, Chris Cook, Senior Vice President and Head of Underwriting at Crump. Well, Chris, thanks for joining us. Uh, COVID is still with us and long COVID can be an issue in insurance underwriting. Before we talk about that, let's define it. What is meant by long COVID? That's a great question. And there are so many different definitions as it relates to long COVID. Are there ongoing or any type of residual infections? Is there a, a secondary or, or new infection? It can be called long COVID, long haulers, post-acute COVID-19, chronic COVID-19, post-COVID-19 syndrome. The key here is the CDC instituted a new ICD-10 code a code that many carriers are using now in their decision engines for unspecified post-COVID-19 conditions. And that's creating such a challenge in the marketplace because the symptoms can range from anything. It can range from just you know minor respiratory issues. It can range from major respiratory issues, classic symptoms, loss of taste, loss of smell, or it can even lead to, you know, GI, uh, gastrointestinal, uh, cardiac, or systemic issues because of the ongoing inflammation. It can create symptoms throughout the body, and it makes it so difficult for a clinician to diagnose. And that's really, you know, where we're seeing in the medical records today, so many different types of symptoms that many doctors are saying it could be this, but it also could be long COVID, and they're just not sure. There's no real specific test, Brian, to say, if I do this test, this is what's going to be the diagnosis of long COVID. It's really a battery of protocols that ultimately results in the determination of long COVID. And I know you recently had an issue here with a client who got COVID and then it put the case on hold. Can you share that with us? Most definitely, Brian. In today's marketplace, again, this is a risk-averse versus a risk-aware insurance marketplace. And especially in the over age 70 demographic, you know, we had a case with uh, you know, a, a mid uh, six-figure premium, client was age 75. We received uh, an exception from a carrier uh, for a preferred pricing off of a classically underwritten uh, standard rate. and the case unfortunately did not go placed it dragged on for a number of weeks and you know again there's a lot of uh, a, a lot of factors going on right now in the uh, environment today yep and unfortunately the client was diagnosed with with covid and that now has created a postponement situation uh, for a minimum of 3 months and because of the older age it's going to be a challenge now we're going to have to get updated medical records and we're hoping that uh, there are no 
suggestions of long COVID concerns because that could take a an individual with a business exception uh, to a preferred to a, a decline for individual coverage and potentially uninsurable for a second to die product. So, again, it's the you know the classic cost of waiting, right? Uh, I'm always encouraging our producers and our sales associates in the over age 70 demographic, especially protect the client's insurability. If you have a great pricing, if you have exception pricing, place it in force as quickly as possible, protect the client's insurability to avoid any type of scenarios such as this. And we're seeing now, you know, on the COVID subject, we're seeing, you know, pockets across the country of spikes in COVID infection. So the likelihood that a client or any of us could be reinfected with COVID is pretty high depending on where we're located in the United States. Yeah, I appreciate you sharing that because it is so important now more than ever for producers and advisors to pass that along to their clients. This isn't a sales tactic to get a transaction closed. This is the reality that we live in now, and you may lose that insurance coverage if you don't get the deal done. So thanks for sharing that. Also curious about any vaccine impact, you know, kind of flip the script here on that. Are we seeing any issues there? We are, Brian. There's been recent uh, updated uh, publications regarding the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and what's called uh, micro clotting issues, you know, small blood clots occurring as a result of uh, the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, which are, you know, you know, being looked at uh, both on the clinical side as well as the insurance medicine side. And there's also what's called interstitial lung disease or lung scarring that has been identified with the Pfizer vaccine. So the vaccines themselves, you know, in very small populations can create some challenges themselves. So there's ongoing studies. Yale is just coming out with uh, with a study. The Journal of uh, the American Medical Association has published numerous different uh, studies as it relates to the different vaccines and and uh, some of the complications that could occur in small segments of populations. So definitely we need to make sure that uh, we're looking at all opportunities and understanding who's had what vaccine. Very interesting time in the world and certainly in our business because we deal with this on a daily basis. While we're on the topic of the uh, 70 plus marketplace, is there a correlation that you can draw here from your experience with this demographic and long COVID? Is it more prevalent in older folks? More prevalent per se in that generally as we progress in age, the likelihood that we're going to have treatable conditions, you know, increases, whether it be high blood pressure, whether it be coronary artery disease, whether it be uh, uh, cancer, et cetera, et cetera. You know, essentially uh, the majority of individuals will have some type of treated uh, condition over age 70. And the challenge with individuals that contract COVID or are experiencing long COVID symptoms is that uh, many of these conditions are what's called comorbid conditions or related to increased combined mortality mm-hmm. uh, with COVID and diabetes, for example, because of the inflammation that the COVID virus can cause in respective organs, as well as the condition itself. So in that demographic, there is concern that when you have the combination of comorbidities plus the COVID condition, 
that there could be increased mortality in that demographic. So carriers are very cautious and very diligent in underwriting that age group. And in the over age 80 marketplace, especially, there are many carriers that still have either not gone back into that marketplace you know, where they've had products previously, life products previously, or the client has to be a clearly standard or better risk to be considered on a limited death benefit basis. So it is a very cautious demographic right now, even more so than, uh, than less than age 70 from the COVID perspective. So it's very important. Again, a lost art from my perspective is field underwriting asking those profiling questions, those client demographic questions to best understand your client and what the opportunities are. What we're seeing as well, Brian, whether it be in in that demographic or across the board, not well thought through or, or not well investigated field underwriting, and then just showing preferred best rates for an individual. And that's always been a head scratcher for me. I, I know with certain products, we've turned those into commodities, Brian, and, and you know, you, we want a spreadsheet, a, a term chassis. Uh, but when we're talking about uh, you know, a VUL product or an IUL product, you know, standard rates, that's not a rating. Standard is normal mortality for you and I. We, we all start out as standard, yep. which is normal life expectancy, and we improve or, or get worse based on our conditions. So in this marketplace, I would be encouraging any and all producers, illustrate the individual at standard rates, which is again, normal life expectancy. And if the information during the underwriting process warrants preferred, then that's great. You'll you'll look like the hero. And if it warrants standard, then you're gonna sell what you illustrated. So I, I think it's it's a combination of factors in, in that how we have to adjust our approach to that that older age marketplace. Yeah, that's great advice. I think so many producers got used to getting uh, an exception or getting a better rating and, uh, you know, kind of baked that into their uh, delivery to the client up front. And now it's a time where you got to back that off and let's, uh, you know, let's start low. And if we can, <laughs> you know, deliver good news to your point, that's that's a much better conversation without question. What I'm struck by in our conversation here in the summer of 2022 is the difference from the conversation you and I and underwriters from major carriers had in April of 2021 when we thought we were just coming out of COVID. Quite frankly, they didn't know what they know now about what's happening, right? And it's much more intensive now than it was a little over a year ago, right? I mean, that conversation generally I remember it being, well, hey, um, no, we're not going to have a big deal with this or, you know, no, well, not, you know, not an issue with that. Totally different situation now, isn't it? Well, I think it is somewhat, you know, all of the carriers that, that we do business with, they have gone back to their published pre-pandemic underwriting, but they are certainly being very diligent in their underwriting. So uh, again, to be clear, I, I don't think that we're seeing the restrictions that we saw back at the peak of the pandemic. But you know, again, there are definitely diligent processes in place to make sure that, uh, that the appropriate risk is selected for the proposed insured. So I'm certainly encouraging everyone, if they have clients that were postponed, and, and we're telling all of our sales associates, 
there were you know protocols in place at all the carriers at the peak of the pandemic if it was a certain age or if it was a certain table rating and that does very widely by carry those clients were postponed let's go back and revisit those clients now get updated information see where they are from a covid perspective and see what the opportunities are so we avoid scenarios that ultimately down the road could create you know a higher rating or an uninsurable type of scenario but you know let's always continue to mine that demographic of those prior postponements to see what the opportunities are and make sure that we're doing the appropriate upfront profiling and vetting you know if you had someone that was postponed because of covid last year and they've gotten progressively worse that's probably not going to be an opportunity but if you had someone that has had complete resolution of their symptoms, does not have significant comorbid conditions, then certainly could be an opportunity for standard, if not better coverage, but it's understanding you know, what needs to be done from the underwriting perspective. That's great advice. While I have you on the uh, 70 plus demographic, is there a chance we'll see this open up to accelerated underwriting or is that gonna be on hold for a while? Great question again, Brian. You know, just coming back from the Association of Home Office Underwriters meeting in Denver, which is you know a national meeting of both distributors and carrier underwriters as well as reinsurance underwriters, that was a question in one of the panel sessions for the accelerated underwriting topic. And short term, the answer is no. Carriers don't foresee. Reinsurers don't foresee accelerated underwriting programs broadly expanding into the 70 plus marketplace because of long COVID, because of lack of information in terms of algorithmic data to get through the decision engines. What they do see expanding in the underage 60 demographic, especially the younger ages, is increasing face amounts in the accelerated underwriting programs across the industry. So you know, carriers range anywhere from 500,000 up to 7.5 million. We're going to be seeing those face amounts increase. Uh, So those carriers that have smaller face amounts as they get more experience, you know, going from 500,000 maybe to a million or 2 million, or from, you know, 2 million to 3 million, or from 3 million to 5 million. So definitely the younger age demographics, we're going to be seeing, you know, expansion in face amounts and products in those accelerated programs. Okay. I want to shift gears a little here and talk about the protective value of digital requirements. A little inside baseball here in the industry, but let's talk about this. What are carriers using most frequently? With the advent of accelerated underwriting, there have been a lot of different opportunities for carriers to use data and information to go into the decision engines, the algorithms that they're using for these accelerated programs. The most viable data sets that they've been seeing in the marketplace today, again, coming from the AHU meeting in Denver and discussing these with the carriers, has been the advent of medical claims data in combination with prescription database information, the script checks. And those have been positively impacting not just the accelerated underwriting process, but also in the traditional underwriting space as well, where there have been challenges in getting what we think of as the traditional APS. Again, many doctors' facilities because of COVID and long COVID, the offices and the facilities don't have full staff, don't allow a lot of 
engagement from external sources other than their patients to come in, certainly not to, to copy medical records on a frequent basis. So the industry has had to pivot to uh, different types of requirements. And of those requirements, as I said, the medical claims data, as well as the prescription database uh, information has been key in the process of getting cases to issue faster. You know, I think the future we've discussed previously and, you know, on our, on my last podcast as well, electronic health records, I think those are the future, but uh, we're still not quite there yet as it relates to those being broad brush tools for utilization to replace an APS, a traditional APS, or uh, to replace uh, or use in place of the medical claims data and prescription databases. So I think we'll eventually get there with electronic health records. But, you know, again, right now to hammer that home, we're seeing great success with medical claims data and uh, prescription databases. Where does that leave us with the traditional APS? I mean, are we going to, you know, continue to, I guess, see progress on the digital side where we won't necessarily need that? Or will it depend, you know, case by case, a bigger case, an older client? I mean, what what's your outlook here? I think there's always going to be the need, Brian, for the, you know, what we consider the traditional APS, going to the doctor's office and, and getting those records via a copy service. But that's going to be on a, you know, in the future, a much smaller demographic of cases, and, you know, likely in the $10 million plus range, age 70 and above. Along the topic lines, Brian, as it relates to the traditional APS, a lot of producers are still of the mindset that no matter what, even if a carrier has not asked for the traditional APS, go out and order it now up front because it can take, you know, two, three, four, five, six weeks to obtain the traditional APS records, depending on the facility. You know, we're experiencing on average, you know, a 12-day turnaround cycle on the traditional APS. But I would encourage the producer of today to relook at how they approach the traditional APS. I would not be be proactively ordering the traditional APS on a formal case unless the carrier asks for it because of the fact all carriers in their decision engine processes currently are utilizing a combination of the med claims data, the script check data, electronic health record searches, as well as other digital data such as motor vehicle reports, MIB, et cetera, that, that may not require a traditional APS. So if we can get a case through a decision engine flow with just the electronic data and get standard or better you know, preferred best rates, why would we want to chase an APS where there may not be the need if the carrier has not requested it? And again, I understand the thought process of trying to get ahead of the process and avoid a, you know, a, a six week delay by requesting an APS, but I, you know, I would always be encouraging, let's wait for the carrier to ask for those records because many times they're not gonna be needed. And we've seen all of our core carriers, Brian, dramatically reduce their ordering of APSs. You know, one carrier in particular has gone from, on average, in, you know, in aggregate, 15% requesting APSs on a, you know, a single APS on a case down to less than 3%. Okay. So it's a dramatic reduction in the traditional APSs because of the digital data. So, uh, you know, again, Anytime 
that a producer wants us to go ahead and proactively order a traditional APS. We're trying to have the conversation and educate that producer. Let's hold off and see if the carrier really needs it. Yeah. Yeah, it comes down to common sense, too. If Joe Sixpack is applying for a million dollars in term insurance and you can ask Joe in that interview, hey, have you had any speeding tickets? And if he, if Joe's on three or four medications and had three or four speeding tickets in the last couple of years, you know, <laughs> probably not going to get the best rating, right? I mean, it comes down to that. <laughs> exactly. And Brian, you know, we've seen carry just because carries that have been in the accelerated uh, you know, underwriting program for 10 plus years, we've seen carriers feel so comfortable with the digital data that even an adult onset diabetic, if they've ordered the prescription database, they've ordered uh, what's called a lab screening from one of the um, one of the vendors out there that's able to pull labs from certain vendors. And they can see that the medications have been stable over a period of years. That the for a, for a diabetic, their A1Cs have been stable over a period of years. They're not going to want to chase the APS, and they don't chase the APS. They can price the product, you know, low substandard to standard off of that script check and off of the serial lab results. They don't need the traditional APS. Again, for those cases, less than a million dollars and, you know, under age 60, there's no need. So again, just reinforcing and continuing to reinforce, let's wait and see what the carrier needs before we uh, chase down something that could really, you know, hurt the case because you don't know what you're going to dig up, right? Exactly. You know, want to close out talking about behavioral science and analytics, what the carriers are using uh, in that perspective. I know you're just back from these meetings, so you've got some fresh perspective there. And I've been curious how much they're scraping from, you know, Facebook or, you know, social media where, hey, Brian just finished his first 10K. Congratulations. You know, woohoo. And, you know, how much that impacts right or or offsets maybe something that might be perceived as negative is that happening well you know let's talk about the behavioral sciences first you know when you have carriers that have the uh, online questions that you can go in and complete versus the tele-interviews that uh, you know are are starting to go by the wayside because you know we've experienced and the carriers have seen that uh, they're having better better success with the online interviews where the client or post insured can go in at his or her leisure and complete the online questionnaire, you know, m- you know, many times after normal core hours. You know, we're, we're talking, you know, uh, midnight, one, two, three o'clock in the morning. The behavioral sciences aspect of that is when you have a client who's toggling back and forth between a question, say, for example, a tobacco question, do you use tobacco? Yes or no? And they're toggling back, well, yes, then no, then yes, then no, then yes. So there are algorithms in place that can say, gee, you know, because of the the back and forth activity, there's a higher propensity for the answer to be yes or the answer to be no. And surprisingly, one of the the topics uh, that uh, one of the panels mentioned was the weight issue. One carrier is experiencing when the proposed insurer does the electronic uh, questionnaire and they provide their weight, the proposed insurer provides their weight and many carriers are doing background or post-issue underwriting where they will pull a traditional APS to see how accurate the question responses were, they're finding that in 20% of the cases, the proposed insured overestimated their weight on the the electronic questionnaire, not to the point where it impacted the rating, but 
it was a, you know, a, a five pound variance or a, a, a 10 pound variance, you know, overestimating, uh, but you know, still allowed the client to get uh, preferred or preferred best. So I did find that interesting. You know, you know, the normal thought process would be that uh, the client would uh, significantly underestimate their weight, but that, that wasn't the case at all. To your thoughts on what the home office underwriters are doing from, uh, from a search perspective, you know, it does vary by carry, but you know, everyone does Google searches, right? And and you would be amazed what is available out on the internet, you know, in the public domain information. And and you know, we find it you know, particularly useful as it relates to financial underwriting information. We work a lot with uh, high net worth individuals. Many times, you'll see a carrier require, you know, in their HMR requirements, third-party financials, audited financial statements. But because of the individual in a high profile scenario and, and the amount of information that is out in the marketplace on their financial background, especially Fortune 500 individuals, they will use that information versus going through the arduous process of getting third party financials. So definitely opportunities at the carrier and for the distributor as well to get information that can work to much more easily get a, a policy issued as it relates to uh, you know information out in the public domain. Well, a fascinating conversation. As always, my friend, we appreciate uh, you sharing your insight and taking time to join us. Happy to be here anytime, Brian. Always enjoy the conversation. Crump Life Insurance Services, a leading third-party distributor and service provider of insurance and retirement products, is part of Truist Insurance Holdings Incorporated, the seventh largest insurance broker in the world. Crump supports the distribution of life insurance, annuities, long-term care, linked benefits, disability, and health products with the industry's premier sales and back office support and technology services. Marketing under the following brands, Crump, Truist Life Insurance Services, Risk Rider, Telus, and Time. Source, Business Insurance Magazine, using 2019 brokerage revenue generated, 2020 issue. For financial professional use only. Not intended for use in solicitation of sales to the public. Not intended to recommend the use of any product or strategy for any particular client or class of clients. For use with non-registered products only. Crump operates under the license of Crump Life Insurance Services Incorporated. Arkansas license number 100103477. Products and programs offered through Crump are not approved for use in all states. Copyright 2022, Crump Life Insurance Services, Incorporated.